Amen. There's no greater truth we could meditate on and sing about and reflect on this morning than that. It's the gospel. Um, we are coming up on a season in the, the time of year where we remember Christ's suffering and death on the cross on Good Friday, and then where we celebrate the resurrection on Easter morning. And this is always one of my favorite times of year, just as a church family. I mean, we, we remember and celebrate the gospel on a weekly basis, but to take uh, this time around Easter season and to really focus on that is something that... Um, it always ministers to my heart, and I trust it will to yours as well. We invite you to come on uh, Good Friday. We do have a Good Friday service here, 7 p.m. Stephen will be giving some more information about that later. But I am greatly looking forward to that, uh, to worship with you. Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 77. The 77th Psalm is going to be our text for this morning. We wrapped up our series through the little book of Titus last week. And I'd like to turn our attention to a little bit of a different theme, a different emphasis. We've been looking at what is a healthy church. We've been looking at uh, the importance of pure doctrine, the importance of good works, and the right conduct that flows out of a right understanding and embrace of the gospel. So there's been a lot of exhortation, a lot of instruction, um, really trying to push us to see where it is that God wants us to go and what is his will for us as a church. Psalm 77 strikes a very different note, and it's one that I think uh, may be timely for us. Psalm 77, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, and then we'll pray together. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Father, as we approach your word this morning, 
We recognize that all Scripture has been inspired by you, breathed out by you, and it is profitable for us. Lord, we're thankful today for the Psalms that speak to so many different experiences in our lives. I pray that you would minister to us today, that you would speak to our troubles and our distresses and our sorrows and our doubts, and Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, in your grace and your power. Amen. I find myself, um, whenever I have opportunity, returning over and over again to the Psalms. The Psalms are such a rich source of encouragement for me personally. It's a place where I have often been refreshed, where God has often challenged me, convicted me, um, strengthened me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm sure many of you, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, have had those kinds of experiences in this book, in the Psalms. I think one of the reasons the Psalms resonate so much with us is that they really do connect to our lives. They reflect the whole gamut of human experience and emotion, the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows. They express both confidence and doubt, triumph and waiting, rejoicing and suffering. The Psalms call us to the the heights of praise and worship And they also comfort us in the valley of sorrow. But what I love so much about the Psalms and what we need to understand about them is that it's not just kind of a cool thing that they connect to our experience. The Psalms are vertical. They're intended to point us to God. Although they do connect with the inner workings in our hearts, they point us, if we engage with them and read them and understand them properly, the Psalms actually point us away from ourselves. They point us to see God, and that's exactly what happens here in Psalm 77. This psalm is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that is born out of a time of crisis and turmoil. It's a psalm that raises questions, a psalm that wrestles with with painful experiences, but a psalm that ultimately directs us away from self, away from our experience, away from our emotions to see the God who is faithful, who is supreme. Just for simplicity's sake, there's a lot of ways we could break down this psalm and sort of take apart all the pieces, but I'd like to just sort of break it into two halves for us this morning. Really look at it in sort of two parts, and the first is verses 1 through 9. What we see in verses 1 through 9 is that crushing circumstances bring spiritual distress. Crushing circumstances, when you go through hard things, painful things in life, it tends to bring the opportunity for a spiritual distress. We see the crisis here in verses one through three. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He is crying aloud, according to verse one and verse two, in the day of trouble. And we can sort of speculate on the author here. It's a psalm of Asaph. We could sort of try to figure out what was the exact uh, situation he found himself in. What was it that Israel was facing at the time? What was it that he may have been facing at the time? But to be honest, we don't really know the exact source or the nature of this trouble. And that's part of the beauty of the psalm. The fact that it's not specific to a, a certain kind of experience 
actually makes it relatable to us in our various difficulties. Really, this psalm becomes sort of a one-size-fits-all for many different kinds of experiences that we may go through in the Christian life. Whatever his personal experience was in that moment, we can gather a few details, at least, of how this experience of trouble was affecting the psalmist. We see that it is a very personal struggle. Verse 2, he says, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. This is something that's hitting him right where he's at. Something that is internal and personal for him. And it's an intense struggle. Notice in verse 1 and 2, it says he's crying aloud. He says it twice, actually, in verse 1. This is not just the silent prayers whispered under your breath. This is not just the quick little mental prayers offered to God, the God who sees our hearts, the God who knows our thoughts. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there's so much pressure, so much grief, so much um, um, burden weighing down on you that you literally cry out loud to God with groaning, with weeping. That's where he is. This is an intense time of personal trouble, and we notice that it's also a persistent trouble. Look in verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Day and night. He's dealing with insomnia. He can't sleep because of this. It's robbing him of rest. And no matter how much he wrestles, no matter how much he prays, no matter all the truths that he knows, his soul refuses to be comforted. He's stuck in this emotional turmoil. This is more than just a bad day. This is a serious challenge that's bringing him to his knees before God in desperation. And from this this experience of crisis, from these circumstances that he's facing, it actually leads to some questions. Verses 4 through 9, he says, You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. There's an evidence of faith, I think, in this psalm. Even the way he starts out, I think the psalmist, if you were to try to encourage him and counsel him, you would probably tell him, if he's facing hard things, you need to look to the Lord. And he is. He's crying out aloud to God, verse 1. That's where he's starting. So there's evidence of faith here. Even in verse 1, he says, I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me. There's a kernel of faith here. He believes God will hear. But as time goes on, Things don't seem to be changing. No matter how much he cries out to God, no matter how much he pours out his heart, and despite the things he knows to be true, it doesn't seem to be helping him feel any better. Verse 2 says his soul refuses to be comforted. And verse 3 says that as he thinks about these things, and even as he thinks about God, things actually get worse for him. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, My spirit faints. As he thinks about the truth and as he remembers who God is, that's actually making his situation even more painful. What began as a circumstantial trouble is now turning into a crisis of faith. Thinking about God seems to be making things worse, not better. Now he even seems to feel like perhaps God is the one troubling him. Verse 4, he says, you hold my eyelids open. It it now almost feels adversarial that God is the one depriving him of sleep. Why is that? 
Why would this psalmist, as he prays to God, as he remembers God, why is that making things worse instead of better? Well, he's very aware of who God is. Look in verse 5. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. You see, the psalmist remembers how things used to be. And not just how things used to be for him. He knows the stories. He knows the history of his nation, the nation Israel. He knows about all the things that God has done. You see, in times past, when the sun was shining, when everything was going well, it felt like God was very near. But now things are not that way anymore. They're not how they used to be. There's no singing now. It's night. He can't sleep. He's remembering a previous season in his life where he gladly worshiped God. He remembers his song in the night. But there's no song now. Just moaning and fainting and a soul that refuses to be comforted. He's so troubled, verse 4, that he cannot speak, let alone sing praise. So when he thinks about God and he remembers the good old days, he remembers who God is and what God has done in the past and even his own experience of closeness with God and worshiping God, he begins to wonder why God doesn't seem to be showing up. Why isn't God answering my cry? And this starts to raise some serious questions for him. And this really gets, I think, to the heart of his distress and to the most painful part of this psalm. He starts to ask these questions. Verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? We can summarize these questions like this. And maybe these relate to questions that you've asked before. He says, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse 7. He's asking this. Is God against me? Is God against me? Because that's what it feels like. I cry out to him. I'm pouring out my heart. I'm crying aloud to God, but there's no comfort. There's no rest. There's no sleep. I can't even speak anymore. I'm so drained and at the end of myself. He starts to wonder, will the Lord spurn? Is he rejecting me? Is God against me? Verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? He's asking this question, does God love me? Because it certainly doesn't feel like it right now. He starts to ask the question, will God be faithful? He says in verse 8, are his promises at an end for all time? He says, I know what God promised, but I'm not experiencing that right now. He said this, but that's very different than what I'm facing. Will God be faithful? Verse 9, he asks, has God forgotten me? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Am I off of his radar? And perhaps the scariest one, verse 9, at the end of verse 9, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Is God angry at me? Is that the reason why things are so hard right now? Is that the reason why he doesn't seem to be answering my cry? Perhaps it's my fault. It's my sin. And God's compassion is shut up and he is angry at me. I think these questions are natural. 
They're natural for this reason. Perhaps you can relate. When we go through hard things, when we go through difficult things, and when we struggle, when we experience this kind of turmoil and distress, we are tempted to start viewing God through the lens of our circumstances. We start to have thoughts about God that are shaped by our immediate experiences. And when we do that, when we start to think that whatever I'm going through right now is telling me something about who God is, telling me something about what God is really like, when we start to think that way and to view God through the lens of our circumstances, discouragement easily becomes doubt and depression can easily become despair. Whatever the psalmist is facing here, circumstantially, whatever the initial cause of this turmoil, as you read through the psalm, that initial circumstance kind of becomes a secondary problem. This becomes a much greater problem. Does God love me? Has he forgotten me? Is he going to keep his promises to me? Is he angry at me? He starts to wonder, everything that I'm going through is raising these questions about God's posture towards me. And this is really, I think, the heart of his distress. This is worse than whatever it is he may be going through. What's worse is, is what he's fearing may be true about God. To put this in New Testament terms, he's wondering if Romans 8 is really true. He's wondering, you know, Romans 8 says, if God be for us, who can be against us, right? But turn that around. If God is not for us, if God is actually against us, if something can indeed separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, then all is lost. And this is the heart of his distress in this psalm. It's really a crisis of faith. As he's considering who God is and what God's posture is towards him. And friends, these are the questions that bubble up for us when life gets painful. When we feel overwhelmed by trouble. When it feels like God is far off. Or worse yet, when it feels like God is actually against us. Crushing circumstances can bring spiritual distress. I think this happens for us in times of loss. It happens for us in times of adversity, when we're facing, you know, when it seems like everybody and everything in the world is against us. This can happen when we deal with physical pain and suffering, especially if it's chronic in nature. And this can happen even when we experience God's discipline. Sometimes God brings things into our lives to teach us something, to purify us. And sometimes we draw the wrong lessons from it. We start thinking the wrong things from that. But there's all sorts of circumstances. Perhaps you're in the middle of one right now. If you're not, you will be at some point. But the question then arises, how do we deal with those kinds of doubts? What do we do when we start wondering those kinds of questions? How do we deal with those fears and those feelings? That's really the question. And I think that's the reason God has given us this psalm. Because in what follows, we find, I believe, an instructive model for how we can face questions like that. How to deal with this kind of distress. How to face these kinds of doubts. Really a model for how to live our lives. In what follows, I think we find instruction that's not meant to just be reserved for when we find ourselves at the bottom of the valley. It's really a way to live. It's a strategy for life, a way that we fight for faith. 
whether we're at the mountaintops or in the valleys. So that brings us to the second half of the psalm, verses 10 through 20. Crushing circumstances can bring spiritual distress. Yes, but here's the good news. Comfort is found in remembering God. That's how you can summarize verses 10 through 20. Comfort is found in remembering God. Verse 10. Then, on the heels of these questions, on the heels of this emotion and agony, on the heels of his exhaustion, at the bottom of the valley, he says this, verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. What does he do? To deal with these doubts, to deal with these fears, to face the crisis of faith that he finds himself in. Rather than be passive, rather than listen to his emotions, rather than listen to his fears, rather than draw conclusions from his circumstances, he resolves to take action. Not a physical action, but a spiritual, mental, emotional action. He resolves to engage with his doubts. He resolves to face his fears and to turn his gaze to God. You might say, didn't he already do this? Didn't he already think about God? Wasn't he already praying to God? Yes. But there's sort of a passive knowing of God that I think some of us can slip into. There's things we've heard before. There's things we know to be true in our heads. But what do we do when those things don't feel true in our hearts? What are we going to do when the things that we know don't seem to be providing the the comfort that we hoped for? I think the psalmist shows us. He resolves to press in. He resolves to wrestle with these truths, to engage his fears, to look his doubts square in the eye, and to rehearse and to meditate upon the truth of who God is and what it is that God has done throughout history to prove his character. There is deep personal anguish in this psalm, yes, There are sleepless nights, yes. There are troubling questions when he considers what he knows to be true about God and how that seems to conflict with his present experience. But he doesn't lose hope. He doesn't give up. He doesn't determine that he really knows the full story just yet. Rather than running from these questions or trying to ignore the distress that they're causing, rather than trying to just escape it and numb himself from all of this, he presses in. He presses in. Look at the resolve. In verse 10, he says, I will appeal to this. Verse 11, I will remember. I will remember. Two times he says it. Verse 12, I will ponder and I will meditate. He is not passive. He presses in and resolves to focus and to remember God. It's as if the psalmist knows that these questions and these doubts and these fears that are bubbling up in his heart, that they can only remain, they can only persist if he forgets certain things about God. It's not that he's unaware of history or theology, but he knows that if he neglects to focus on God, that the emotional impact that those truths are meant to have, they can easily wear off. So when we're, we talk about remembering this morning, 
when the psalmist here talks about remembering, don't think about remembering as just simply a passing thought of, yeah, I know that that's still true. This is rather the discipline of thinking deeply. That's what he means by remember. When he says, I will remember, he uses synonyms. I will remember, I will meditate, I will ponder. And he says, I will appeal. In this remembering and pondering and meditating, he's reaching out to grab hold of something. This is deeply thinking on, focusing on God and what God has done. What he's seeking to do, here's what's so important. He's seeking to bring the truth to bear upon his emotions, to engage his doubts with declarations from God's word. He wants to shine the light of God's truth onto the darkness of his fears and his doubts. He says, I will appeal, verse 10, to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I think this is important. He knows that he needs to zoom out a little bit. He's not going to look simply at his own personal experiences. I've been alive not quite 40 years, so I have some experiences. But when he says he will appeal to the years of the Most High, he's stepping back and zooming out to say, my understanding of who God is needs to include a whole lot more than this one little narrow slice of history that affects me. He needs to look back at God's track record throughout the centuries The psalmist knows something that we tend to forget, that the answers to these questions about God require a a bigger sample size than just what we've been through in our own immediate experience. He says, I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord and remember your wonders in verse 11. This too is important. Not only is he zooming out to get a wider perspective, but notice what it is he's looking for as he looks in this perspective, rather than fixate on what God is not doing in answering his cry, removing the source of his turmoil, granting him sleep in that moment, restoring his joy. Those are things God is not doing at this exact moment. And rather than focus on what God is not doing, the psalmist resolves to remember what God has done on what God has done. And what God has done in the past is remarkable. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. Your wonders, these miraculous deeds, these astounding acts of providence and power that have taken place throughout history. He says, I'm going to think about that rather than thinking about whatever it is you're not doing right in this exact moment in my life. So he zooms out to get this bigger picture perspective and then he zooms in to focus on what God has done rather than what God hasn't done. He says in verse 12, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Why is he doing this? Why is he pondering, meditating? He knows that nourishment for faith is found in pondering God's works. You know what doesn't help us when we're struggling? Maybe you've tried it, and so you know this doesn't work. Here's what doesn't work. It doesn't work when we meditate on our experiences, when we meditate on our own questions, when we meditate on and ponder our circumstances. That doesn't bring any comfort. It doesn't bring any help. 
The psalmist isn't focusing on his questions or his experiences. He's not focusing on his pain. He's not even thinking solely about his own fears. He's not, he's not fixated on the uncertainties of the future. That's what tends to dominate our focus so often. What's going to happen? How is this going to turn out? No, he focuses on the concrete reality of what God has done in history. What God has done, according to verse 10, with his right hand. The right hand of the Most High. This is a statement of God's power. His right hand describes his arm that reaches out to act in history. Think about God as the greatest arm wrestler in the history of the universe. He's undefeated when he extends his right hand. And he is the most high God who is over all things. He says, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to focus on God and what God has done. This is the key to overcoming our doubts and our fears. This is the key, friends, for enduring hardship and persevering through sorrow and suffering. It is a relentless focus on the power and the faithfulness of God. To get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, off of the uncertainties, off of our questions, and to gaze upon God. As he reflects on what God has done, he comes to the inescapable conclusion of who God is. And this is the solution for his spiritual distress. He says, I will appeal, verse 10, I will remember, I will remember, verse 11, I will ponder, I will meditate, verse 12. And what conclusion does he arrive at? Look with me at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. He says in verse 13, God is holy. God is holy. He says there is no one like him. To be holy is to be separate, to be set apart, to be distinct. The psalmist says God stands in a category all by himself. He is completely distinct, separated from his creation, separate from all impurity and sin. He is incomparable in his glory and power. And this holiness is displayed in his mighty works, his acts of salvation and judgment. And notice then that he starts asking a different kind of question. As he remembers what God has done and he sees who God is, that he is holy, he is unique, he is incomparable, he is faithful, he reflects on all that God has done throughout history, he starts asking a different kind of question. Verse 13, what God is great like our God? As he goes through this exercise, this discipline, as he engages in this strategy of resolving to focus and meditate on God, he starts asking better questions. He starts asking the right questions. And this question is actually the key to all the other questions. This is what solves it for him. Yes, there are troubles, but he knows that abandoning hope in God is not the answer. I think the disciples came to this conclusion In the book of John, as Jesus says hard things, he looks at them because many people were going away and he says, are you also going to leave? And you remember how they answered, where else will we go? You have the words of life. The psalmist has arrived at that same conclusion. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? 
He may not have all the answers to his questions. He may not have relief from his his situation, but what he has is knowledge of the one true God. What he has is a real foundation for hope. What he has is a real source of comfort. Why would he turn away from that? Why would he exchange the one true, holy, supreme God and look for hope or comfort in some lesser thing? No way. This is the right question. And it puts all those other questions in their place. What God is great like our God? This is something the psalmist has found that is solid that he can stand on. And this is not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. This is not closing his eyes and deciding, well, I guess I better just jump and maybe God will catch me. No, this is an informed faith. It's an informed faith. It's a faith that is informed by the historical acts of God. As he remembers, as he goes back to think about God's mighty deeds, there is concrete reality in history that shows us who God is and what God has done. And it is that that strengthens his faith. What mighty deeds does he have in mind? What are the wonders of old in particular that the psalmist was was meditating on, that he was pondering? Look in verse 15. He has in mind especially... God's work of redemption. He says, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. He says, you redeemed your people. Remember his question about, will God spurn us forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Will God keep his promises? Does God love us? Is God the kind of God who reaches a threshold in his anger where he decides to no longer be compassionate to sinful and weak and frail people like us? The psalmist says no. The answer to all those questions is no. And he knows that because he knows what's true about God when he looks back and remembers God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. His right arm has redeemed his people, the children of Jacob, And Joseph, God is a God who saves. And as he thinks about history, his faith in that truth is strengthened. God is a God who saved. Notice the reference here to the children of Jacob and Joseph. God is a God who makes covenant promises. Jacob and Joseph, descended from Isaac, descended from Abraham. These are the patriarchs. These are the fathers. These are the ones to whom God made promises that he swore he would never abandon. And as he thinks about this, he's encouraged. Maybe he's facing something difficult. Maybe he's facing something that seems impossible. Could it be more impossible than Pharaoh having a whole nation enslaved in Egypt? Could it be more impossible than divine plagues that God used to triumph over all the supposed false gods of Egypt? Could it be more impossible than parting the Red Sea and and bread coming down from heaven and water coming out of the rock? Could Could God be more gracious than to redeem and save these people despite the fact that they stumbled and turned away from him in the wilderness over and over and over again? As he listens to God's voice from the pages of Scripture, as he remembers redemptive history, it answers his questions. He remembers that those people were in Egypt for 400 years. But as we go back to the book of Exodus, we find that God heard their cries. Okay, so if they had to wait for a long time, 
But God did hear their cries and God did answer. Then it makes sense that I may have to wait for a little bit. Maybe God's not answering my cries tonight. But that does not mean that he won't. You see how all of this helps him to start even seeing his own experience in the right frame of mind. This historical act of redemption for the psalmist is the singular proof of God's power, the proof of his covenant faithfulness, the proof of his love, the proof of his compassion, all of the things that he was tempted to doubt. So he digs down even deeper into the mighty wonders of God's rescue from Egypt. He does this in verses 16 through 20. He doesn't just tell us that, yeah, I'm thinking about what God did in Egypt. He actually starts getting into the details and, and showing us the kinds of things that he's meditating on as he rehearses the truth of what God has done, which reveals his power and his purpose and his character. He fixes his mind in verses 16 through 20, first and foremost on the crossing of the Red Sea. It's that quintessential moment of salvation for the nation of Israel. And in thinking about this, he's reminded about what God is like. Look in verse 16. He says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The Red Sea, this massive body of water, the children of Israel were trapped. They had Pharaoh and his armies bearing down on them, and they had this big body of water at their back. But that is no trouble for God. The Red Sea was no obstacle for him. God is supreme over the waters, and the psalmist knows that if God is supreme over the waters of the Red Sea, he's supreme over any trouble and obstacle in my life. And if even the waters themselves, he sort of personifies here the Red Sea in verse 16, that the waters saw God as it were, and that they were, as it were, afraid of God, that the depths of the ocean itself trembled in the presence of God. He's like, man, if the Red Sea was afraid of God, what other enemies What other obstacles would possibly be able to stand if God is with me, if God is for me? He knows he doesn't have to be afraid because God has all power over the elements, verse 16. He has power over them. Not just has power over them, he actually owns them. Verse 17, it says, The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. And then look at this. Your arrows flashed on every side. He describes the lightning as belonging to God. It's easy for us to see all the things in the world as being sort of adversarial to God. But the psalmist knows God is actually in control of all of it. He owns it all. He's wielding it all. He is the sovereign God over creation. The lightning is his. Your lightnings lighted up the world, verse 18. Talks about the crash of your thunder in verse 18. God owns the elements. He's reminding himself as he thinks about the crossing of the Red Sea that nothing in the world operates outside of God's will. He owns it all. He operates it all. Verse 19, he says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Here's an important theological truth that the psalmist is rehearsing. That God is unseen, yet powerfully present. God is unseen, but powerfully present. Verse 19 says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. 
Now we know it sort of ties back in with verse 16 with the waters being afraid of God. You know, there's scholars who try to explain, well, maybe the wind blew and maybe there was, you know, strong magnetic pulls and gravitational pull of the moon or some sort of earthquake. No, this is why the waters parted. They were getting out of God's way. God showed up and the water said, excuse me, and stood back so that God could walk through Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Listen, we know that God is powerful, but sometimes we forget that he's with us, that he's here, that he's present. Nobody saw God's footprints in the sand as they crossed through these two massive walls of water. They passed through on dry ground, and they didn't see God's footprints. They couldn't see God's physical form, his presence was, was manifested there in a sense with the, the pillar of cloud and his glory, but they couldn't actually see God. Listen, God is unseen, but he is powerfully present. This is encouraging because you know, earlier in the psalm, he describes God's sovereignty over the thunder and the lightning and, and the downpour of the, the thunderstorm. But he describes God here not just being some distant sovereign who sort of, you know, operates, you know, working from home, remote, you know, controlling everything that's going on over there where all his people are. No, he describes God as being immediate. God as being present. He's not a distant God. He's actually the one walking through the water, opening things up for his people to follow behind, which means that he's not just powerfully present, he is also personally present present. He is personally present. We find this personal touch in verse 20. He says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God's not just operating the machinery to open up the sea. He's leading them personally like a flock. Here's this shepherd imagery that God is caring for, tending, providing for, and leading his people personally. Yes, he does it through his chosen instruments, Moses and Aaron. But the psalmist knows who really led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And it wasn't Moses. It was God. It was God. He is unseen, but powerfully and personally present. This shepherd language speaks to us of God's personal care for us, his protection for us, his provision for us. This is what he's chewing on. This is what he's meditating on. Okay, I'm sleepless, I'm exhausted, I'm in turmoil and trouble, I'm crying out to God, and it feels like nothing's happening. It feels like nothing's changing. And my soul right now refuses to be comforted. I need to remember that God is here. I need to remember that God is faithful. I need to remember that God personally cares for me. I need to remember that God keeps his promises to his people. That's where the psalmist goes. And he presses into those truths as he rehearses the faithfulness of God and his redeeming grace throughout history. And here's what's amazing. Then the psalm just sort of ends after verse 20. It just stops. Maybe you haven't thought about that, but like, there's no therefore after verse 20. Often we do find that in Scripture where the author will say, therefore, I will sing and rejoice and trust God, or therefore, let us have hope and not grow weary. There's often these beautiful therefores in Scripture that connect the dots for us and show us how we should think and feel and live in light of what's true. But the psalm just sort of stops at the end of verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
period. Here's the thing. The psalmist doesn't think there's any comment needed. In his mind, the works of God, they speak for themselves. And if you can look at the history of God's dealings with his people, if you can look at his power and his grace, his mercy, his majesty, as it's played out over history, and come away saying, huh, I wonder how I should think about God, then you haven't actually understood. He doesn't give us a therefore because there's no comment needed. The works of God speak for themselves. When God is seen rightly, we will fear him and we will trust him. When God's grace is seen rightly, we will find comfort in his promises. We'll find peace in the knowledge that he is with us and though he is unseen, he personally cares for us. We'll find confidence in him. Our faith will be strengthened as we engage in the same exercise, as we adopt the same strategy that the psalmist does, where we get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, even off of our questions and doubts, off of all the unknowns, and we discipline ourselves to think deeply about who God is and the kinds of things God has done throughout history to reveal his holiness, his glory, and his grace to us. As the psalmist does this, he finds the peace he's looking for. He finds assurance that all of his questions do have answers. God does have compassion on his people. God does love us. God does hear our cries. God is faithful to his promise. God does have a plan for his people. God does judge his enemies. He triumphs over the elements. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. And therefore, there's no need for us to give in to despair. For our discouragement to lead to doubt and a crisis of faith. There's something solid for us to stand on. I I love what Derek Kidner says as he comments on the psalm. He says, by the end of the psalm, the pervasive I, all these references at the beginning of the psalm, I cry out, my sleep, my soul, when I remember. He's he's very self-aware at the beginning of this. Kidner says, by the end of the psalm, the pervasive eye has disappeared and the objective facts of the faith have captured all his attention and ours. This is why a psalm that starts with lament and distress and personal struggle and doubt ends on such a note of confidence, a note of comfort and hope and praise. Because despite his immediate experience, despite his present emotions, as he remembers God's works, he's convinced that God is there, that God speaks, God acts, that he is gracious and powerful, that he is faithful and good. The logic of the psalmist is this, that God is today who God was then. He's the same God which means that God will do today as he has always done because God always acts out of his character. He isn't just holy in the past tense. He's holy today. He isn't just faithful in the past tense. He is faithful today. God is who God was and God will do as he has done. He never changes and therefore he can be trusted. This is what brings him comfort in his distress. The point of this whole psalm, the lesson it's meant to teach us is this. Here's the timeless principle I want you to take home. Reflection on the past is key 
to comfort in the present and hope for the future. Reflection on the past, specifically rehearsing the glorious works of God in his works of redemption. Reflection on the past is the key to comfort in the present and hope for the future. So how about us? Let me ask you, where do you turn in times of trouble? All of us have been through it. Some of you are in it right now. Some of you are preparing to face it at some unknown point in the future because that's part of life in a broken world. But how do we face those times of distress? How do you personally tend to cope with your fears and with your doubts and with sorrow and when it feels like God is far off? What is it that you tend to meditate on? What fills your mind? What do you ponder? What do you chew on? Are you thinking through plan B and plan C? Are you thinking about all your options and strategizing? If I can just sort of you know, figure out a way to manage this, I, I think I can find a way out. Are you thinking about all the what-ifs and the uncertainties and trying to brace yourself for the impact of all the things that might happen, all the things that could happen? Do you focus on your circumstances? Do you replay over and over and over again in your mind the painful things that have happened? What is it that you meditate on? Where do you turn? How do you cope? You might say, well, J.D., that's a great psalm, and that's awesome for whoever this Asaph guy is because he did that for Israel. But here's the thing. He never did that for me. I haven't been through the Red Sea. I haven't been brought out of slavery in Egypt. You're right. None of you were alive back then. This was thousands of years ago. So he hasn't done that for you. But listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God actually did something better. He's actually done something even greater than walking through the middle of a giant body of water. Jesus actually walked through something deeper. He walked through death, and he did it for us. There is a greater salvation that the Exodus was meant to point us to. And passing through the Red Sea was an echo of a later deliverance that God would bring through the death and resurrection of his son. If you're a Christian today, if you've believed in the gospel and placed your hope in the power of Jesus Christ, then that's your exodus moment. That's your exodus moment. Just as the psalmist looked back to the deliverance from Egypt, you know what we're supposed to look back to? We look back to the cross. We look back to the empty tomb. We look back and we see what God has done for us through Christ. The logic of looking to the cross when facing an uncertain future is captured for us beautifully in Romans chapter 8. Listen to Paul's words to the Romans. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm going to read that again because I want you to hear every word of that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is a rhetorical question. If God did that for us, if he sent his son Jesus for us, do you think he will not do something less? That he will not answer our cries? 
that he will not pour out his grace and his mercy in this moment, that he will not sustain you and be with you even in the valley of the shadow of death, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, friends, we need to learn to look to the cross I think we do that to find relief from certain things. When we're dealing with shame, we're dealing with guilt for our sins, we rightly look to the cross um, to to find uh, comfort, to find forgiveness, yes. And we should. But we also need to look to the cross to help us engage with our uncertainties. The cross should speak to our doubts about God's love about his control over horrible tragedies. I mean, think about what's a worse tragedy than, than man killing God. We need to learn to look to the cross when, when we feel like God isn't hearing us and isn't meeting our needs. What greater need do we have than the need for forgiveness from sin and salvation? And God has met that need. We need to look to the cross to answer the questions and the doubts that arise in our minds when we are overwhelmed by trouble. Listen, when you start asking questions like, is God against me? Does God love me? Will God be faithful? Has God forgotten me? Is God angry at me? The cross answers those questions. It answers those questions. The character of our God is revealed in his glorious work of salvation. And it's as we remember the past and reflect on the past, specifically what God has done through Jesus Christ, we find comfort in the present and hope for the future. Let me give you very quickly, I'll just read these three quick application points, just three. Here's what we need to do today as we go from here. Number one, resolve to run to God, not from God, when things get hard. Resolve to run to God, not from God, when things get hard. The psalmist does this in prayer. He does this by reflecting on the truth that is in God's word. Press in. And if you feel like, I already tried that and it didn't work, do it more. Resolve to run to God, not from God, when things get hard. Number two, resolve to meditate on God and his works, not your doubts, fears, circumstances, or the future. Listen, friends, when you and I focus on all the things going on in the world and we take our eyes off Christ, we will be just like Peter who walks out on the water, takes his eyes off of Jesus, he looks at the storm, the wind, and the waves, and he starts to sink. Resolve to discipline yourself to meditate on God and his works, not on all the things going on around you. And when you find yourself meditating on the wrong things, confess it. Say, God, forgive me that I fear those things more than I fear you. Repent and meditate on God and his works. Number three, resolve to remember his work of redemption through Jesus Christ. Resolve to remember Christ and to see that as the perfect an authoritative statement of God's power and his purpose and his character. Listen, if your view of God and your understanding of God and what he is like, if you're seeing God through any other lens than the gospel, any other lens than the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you're not seeing God rightly. So resolve to remember God and to view him through this work of redemption through Christ. Listen, we're approaching Good Friday. We're approaching Easter It's a season for remembering, and I hope that as you reflect on God's work in the past this Easter, as you reflect on God's work in the past, that he would strengthen your faith. Not just faith in the promise of forgiveness, definitely that, but more than that, that he would strengthen your faith 
and bring an increased kind of a comfort and a peace and a confidence and a hope that he is God, he does not change, he is with us, and we can trust him. That's going to give us comfort in the present. It's also going to give us hope for the future. Let's pray. Lord, your word is always exactly what we need. I ask God that the truth of this psalm would resonate in our hearts today, that the way the psalmist wrestles through his doubts and fears would be a model for how we engage with our own doubts and fears, our own distresses and sorrows, our own uncertainties. Lord, help us to look to you. I pray that you would enable us by your spirit to believe, to believe that you are God and you do not change. And that we can look to the past and see how you've proven yourself over and over and over again at the Red Sea, throughout the history of Israel, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, in the early history of the church. But we look back to all of that and we especially consider the death and resurrection of Jesus as our Savior. That's the proof of who you are. That is the definitive statement that reveals to us exactly how we should think of you. Lord, help us to believe. And in believing, give us comfort and peace as we look to you. Amen.